Welcome back and good morning fellow coffee lovers and book lovers. We are continuing on today of course in the Baristas, sorry, the Curious Baristas Guide to Coffee by Tristan Stevenson in the middle of page 19. Prior to the introduction of instant coffee, the past 200 years has seen the dynamic between green coffee and the consumer change significantly. Coffee began as an exotic drink that was served to people who visited coffee houses before evolving into something that was both roasted and brewed in the family home. The shift to buying pre-roasted coffee took much longer than it probably should have, and this was largely down to, quite rightly, consumer fear about shady counterfeit coffee made from chicory, peas, corn, pretty much anything. An important law was passed in Germany in 1875 that forbade the sale of substitute coffee beans marketed as coffee. Counterfeit and adulterated coffee had been blighting the German market for some time, with one journal for housewives, published in 1845, advising women to wash their coffee beans before grinding to check if ink leaches out. The new legislation did great things for consumer faith in off-the-shelf roasted coffee, though, rapidly killing off the home-roasting tradition while hugely increasing demand for commercially roasted coffee. It might seem hypocritical to celebrate the death of home roasting in a book that teaches you how to roast at home, see pages 63 through 64. But I think it goes without saying that things have moved on since then. It's important to note, though, that Germany was perhaps more ahead of the time than any other nation in creating a stable commercial coffee roasting industry with quality at its core, which goes some way towards explaining why German coffee roasters are most sought after. The Evolution of the Café For most of the world, it has been the rise of espresso drinking culture that has driven coffee consumption outside of the home over the past 50 years. In Europe, the Italians did an exceptional job of arousing a sense of romance and passion in us when it comes to the no longer so simple act of drinking a cup of coffee. Coffee. <laughs> espresso bars first appeared in the 1950s in London, Melbourne, Wellington, and San Francisco and were initially perceived by many as fake, showy, over overly stylized, and downright weird. The sociologist Richard Hobart described that atmosphere of one London espresso bar in 1957 as spiritual dry rot amid the odor of boiled milk. Those that frequented such establishments tended to be of the younger generation and were labeled by their elders as wild, sexually promiscuous, and irresponsible. Although this seems a common complaint between one generation and the next, it is plausible that those who were embracing the espresso bar we're experiencing a taste of not just a new type of coffee, but also of the enlightenment and liberation that had been granted to those who frequented the coffee houses of the 17th century. Over the decades that followed, the knee-jerk reaction that had initially fought to culturally fend off the espresso bar slackened into an embrace. As all things continental became a badge of honor, the espresso machine became an icon of modernity in its time and remains a powerful statement of well-cultured taste even today. But the truly authentic espresso bar, as continentally quintessential as it may sound, where a 60-second visit grants one enough time to order, demolish and pay for a drink without even taking a seat, has never truly found traction outside of Italy. A picture above shows a... Starbuck coffee and says, 
China is famous for its tea drinking, but even this back street in Chengdu has not escaped the Starbucks treatment. It has been softened and adapted, adapted to meet the standards of the working class man, business executive, and lady who lunches, among many others, alike. In many respects, the Italian roots of espresso have paled over the past 20 years, only to be replaced by a new style of coffee appreciation that, rather alarmingly, has little to do with actual coffee, although they would have you believe otherwise. Growth of the American-style coffee chain, born out of the West Coast anti-establishment and whole food movement of the late 1960s, still pushes on, and the likes of Starbucks now adorn not only the towns of the Western world, but the rest of the world, too. The commercialization of milk and sugar coffee has in fact reached such a point of ubiquity that, some would say, the cities of our world are quickly becoming carbon copies of one another, with the same inescapable shopfronts and cafe interiors wherever you go, ironic given the motivations behind their humble origins. This kind of success doesn't come without being popular, however, which means that, for many of us, the prevalence of such places is a positive thing. The most obvious reason for this is the function that they serve as a third place between work and home, one which is reliable, unchanging, and accessible wherever you are. While individuality may be lost in these chains, in many respects they are the same as those of the 17th century, acutely aware of and cleverly balancing the dual purpose of being a place that coffee can be enjoyed and somewhere where higher cultural values can be appreciated. Think about it. A seat in Starbucks grants one access to a forum for any kind of discussion, limitless creative space, research tools for the sciences and arts, media libraries and cutting-edge news, all you need is a laptop and a Wi-Fi password. Coffee is optional, as the Starbucks logo would attest to, once proudly stating, Starbucks coffee, it now makes no mention of coffee at all. One major development of the past 20 years is how discerning in our or ordering rituals have become. The element of choice in a cafe has become an expressive device with which we can communicate personal taste and product understanding in an otherwise homogenized high street environment. The coffee menu at a typical chain store offers maybe six varieties of drink, four types of milk, two or three espresso sizes, half a dozen flavored sauces, and three beverage sizes, totaling well over 1,000 different permutations. The trick is in the demystifying design of the menu, which seeks to process and output our order as rapidly as possible. Of course, our decision is more often made before we even walk in, but even when some deliberation occurs, it is surprising how rapidly we can trim 1,000 options down to a single order. And now it is the notion of removing choice, which only a short time ago was celebrated by the world's best cafes, that defines the new wave of quality-driven hipster hangouts. In these minimalist inner-city sanctuaries, we see the counterculture movement once again partnering with coffee where quality, knowledge, and attention to detail are the overriding themes, sometimes at the sacrifice of good service, and excellent coffee the backbone. Many of these cafes hold their product in such high regard that they will roast their own coffee, directing consumer decision-making specifically to the brew method and the origin and processing method of the coffee. 
In most instances, it is the expertise of the barista in which we place our trust, which broadens the dynamic further. In this way, the entire concept of a cup of coffee evolves from being a, an indulgent treat, caffeinated pick-me-up, or expression of individuality into a beverage that contains all the nuance and refinement of a fine wine or gourmet steak, naturally drawing attention to our apparent appreciation of such things in the action of drinking it. Thank you. We'll continue on next morning from the middle of page 21. Enjoy the rest of your day.